everybody. This is Heather Gold, your co-host at TunnelVision.tv, and it is episode 62 with the wonderful Andy Carvin of NPR, who is the Bono of tumbling. He has tumbled the Middle Mideast um, revolutions, and he's made a huge difference. And what else? How, what, what are we going to talk about with him today, Debs? We're going to talk to him about, um, A, how he does it, and uh, how he views what he does as journalism as opposed to just community the way some people think of it and kevin marks what else are we going to talk about we'll also talk about um other journalist role models like ariana huffington and sarah jane smith and uh it's going to be full of incredible insight from andy and i think we're gonna have a, we have a pretty big chat room showing up so it's be a great conversation join us here at tunnelvision.tv Hello everyone, welcome to Tamil Vision, a weekly salon-style podcast about how to connect and create a world that puts people at the centre of business, tech and culture. Each week we explore various dimensions of tumbling with the smart folks creating this new world. What's tumbling, you might ask? Tumbling comes from the Yiddish word to tumul. To tumul means to make noise, like the English word tumult. Tumblers were traditionally hired at weddings to encourage guests to dance, or comedians at Jewish bungalow colonies who all week connected with the guests before and after the show to create a sense of community. We believe the answer to the question, how do you collaborate in a network age? How do you run things when life is not command and control? You tumble. The show is hosted by myself, Kevin Marks, by Deb Schultz. Hello, all. And by Heather Gold, who will be joining us shortly when she gets her microphone. And our guest tonight is Andy Carvin of NPR. Hi, everyone. Andy is, is famous for um, his work with NPR and connecting them to social media. But more recently, he's, he's been tumbling all the different revolutions that have been happening in the Middle East in real time, um, living on Twitter and gathering thoughts from the world. So what, I, if, um, what I'd like to do first is kick off with a little bit of um, discussion about what's been going on in the news this week, which may be a bit tricky for those of us who've been off on holiday, but there were a few things that, that um, caught our attention. Let me see. There was, there was a fascinating article about Ariana Huffington in Adweek. I don't know if you saw this. Um, it was about what, Ariana. About Ariana, not by Ariana, yet. Yes. The headline is was... Using the, the, the seductive and tantalizing tricks of a modern-day courtesan, the new media mogul puts a brave new world under her spell, which was um, fascinating for me because this was part of the discussion about the word tumbler in the first place. Um, I had wanted to use the word geisha, but the Americans really did not like that word um, because even though in Japan it imp- implies someone who, who holds the conversation, um, in America it has undertones of being a, a prostitute. Um, and here they're using calling Ariana a courtesan, um, giving that, that same implication. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, the, it was interesting because the, I think it was an article in Adweek about Ariana, and, you know, just from a, using the word courtesan to describe her, you know, there's a lot, you, you could argue from a feminist perspective also. It's like, because she's sexy and smart, she's a courtesan, you know, right? Yeah, it's- it's very you know, so I, I don't know, um, if, Andy, if you, you know what, what your point of view. The point, the point was basically saying, you know, Ariana's a big piece of Ariana's success 
is that she gets to be the smart, sexy woman in the room in a business that's media. And I think the point of the article is kind of missing, and we've talked about it here sometimes on the show, is that, and then we hate to admit it, is that these quote-unquote softer skills of the Tumblr are often uh, attributed to women. And, you know, so I have mixed feelings about that article because I don't think it's a feminine or masculine sort of entity. And then they added, sort of added the sexiness into it. So to me, the, the whole thing, I'm sure if Heather was on, she'd go, the whole thing sucked. But to me, it was sort of missing the point of why she's successful, Ariana, I think. And I think it is because she's a tumbler. And using the word courtesan is just a, yeah, no, it's just a slight in a way. What right. Do, I mean, what did you think, Tess? Well, she, I mean, you know, if you can use a French word, I'd say salonnière. You know, she's the person who, who does organize these kind of physical get-togethers, and what she did was translate those skills to, to the web. But that was very much something that she'd been doing before um, she set up Huffington Post. Um, there, was an, there was another one that um, fitted together with this for me, which was um, a, sto- um, a blog post by Susan Cowlin, um, right. who's a Scottish comedian, um, who's who's pretty successful, um, and I was hoping to get Heather's take on this. But there was there was a, um, a a competition for female comedians in the UK called Funny Women, um, and this year they've decided that you have to pay a fee to, to enter rather than free entry and, and being judged. And and she complained about this, and they wrote back a very snotty reply, um, basically saying. Um, Female comics uh, need to be funny and can act with grace and professionalism in what continues to be a largely male-dominated industry. Um, so basically se- d- dismissing those who talked about this issue, um, who, about being f- forced to enter it, and, and basically saying, you're not feminine enough, you're, you're letting down female comics and telling them what they could say, which I, which I thought was a, another piece of this putting the women in their corner thing. Huh. That, that's, that's also it's sort of also how you deal with sort of the, the feminine side of stuff. I, you know, I I um, yeah I agree with Laura Ryan uh, if I'm pronouncing your chat room name right. It's a very sexist derogatory word, courtesan, and they're just yes, jealous exactly. of her skills and her success. It is a very sexist word, and I just get upset because it sort of demeans not only the female part but the part that's the tumbler part. It, it sort of attributes all the stuff that she does in a connectedness way as, um, you know, as just attributed to her, her femaleness. And, that's, right. but, and that's, the, that's the missed opportunity that I, I thought is a good opportunity for us to talk about. Because, uh, you know, before she was in media, like you said, she was through salons in Washington, D.C. and connected people all the time. So I think one of the keys to her success is the fact that she took that skill set to the web at the time when blogging was taken off and understood the connectedness that has to happen. Yes. Right? So for a media person, she's pretty much a, a really good tumbler. I mean, it depends which side of the extreme that you start from, right? She's still about Ariana and about the Huffington Post as opposed to about the story more than most. But compared to a Rupert Murdoch, <laughs> she's pretty connected and community-oriented. 
and she knows how to work the the her community, whether it be in front of a room or with others, etc. Hey, Heather's Heather's here. Andrew, we can pull her in. So I I just wanted to bring that up as as a as a point of a fact because the article just <clears throat> got me up in arms on a couple of different le- levels. And yes. Sort of bleh. Hello, so, you know, everybody. Hey. Yay, Heather. Hey, how's it going? Hi, hey, Hi, Andy. You sound like you're practically in my lap. Oh dear. <laughs> How exciting. You have some con- just, it's um, going to be that kind of evening, I guess. You have yes, some re- you have serious connectivity. We were just doing our first bit of news about sort of um, the, there was an article about Ariana this week that sort of called her a courtesan and sort of limited her a lot of her success to her femaleness. And we thought that it missed the point by calling her a courtesan of her Tumblr skills. Yeah, she has both, but she uses she uses the feminine a lot in what she does. I know she. I know uh, Emily Nussbaum did a a profile on her and has tremendous respect for her. I know, although I've argued with Emily many times about Ariana, but I haven't met her, and Emily has. And she said, you know, she's sort of got amazing charisma, but she does a ton of connecting. Now, bear in mind, she doesn't connect people openly. She connects them in a status environment, right. But um, that's how she really built her um, – well, it's one of the ways she built her, her leverage. In right, the her power center. Uh, I mean, other, other than, of course, marrying a gay man and taking his name and money and running for office. But other than that, it's uh, – no, she's supposedly – she's got to be a very powerful person in of herself. Yeah, totally. So but she I, totally uses it. I, I just I – just, I just got pissed that they used the word courtesan because it sort of missed the point. <laughs> you know, it's too easy to sort of shrug off some a successful woman's power because they're sexy, uh, rather than seeing the other things that she did in addition to that. You yeah, know? and I don't think it's just about being smart; it's her connectedness. It's she's she's incredibly opportunistic. Remember, she was yeah. conservative when it was really hip for a conservative woman to be out there long before That's Laura right. Ingram, and then magically overnight she became. About that. Liberal. Yes. I still don't know how that happened. Um, it was after she met Bill Maher, you know? That was it. He just turned her around. <laughs> Al Franken. She used to do an in-bed piece with Al Franken on Comedy Central. I, That's right. I forgot about that. That's right. Back in the day. Wasn't that long ago? But let's keep moving through stories, because I think that was just an interesting one to bring up. Because we yeah, talked she, about Ariana. She would, she would be a great guest if she would come do it. But I don't know if she'd talk about how she tumbles, because I, I don't know. I if don't she's, think she's aware of it. Oh, I think she's got to be aware of it. It's how she does everything. Uh, yeah, you're right, I guess. She probably doesn't think. Well, she doesn't. Yeah. Does she strike you as a person without calculation? <laughs> no. Well said. Yeah. I'm just tired. She, I think she's pretty self-aware, yeah. But let, we have Andy Carvin. Let's not lose sight of the magicalness of Andy Carvin. Exactly. That's why I want to move along here. Was yes. there any of our other stories that were were rockin' sockin' that you wanted to talk about that you saw this week, Kev? Or we could just jump right into uh, talking more to Andy well, about I, the week. Just, just to tying up that, I wanted to mention um, Elizabeth Sladen, who was the actress who played Sarah Jane Smith on Doctor Who. Um, and the, she died uh, this week of, of cancer. Um, 
and reading all the sort of obituaries and people's memories of that, I think she she was a sort of a role model as a as a female journalist um, appearing on TV in the in the seventies and eighties, um, and still was you know, making TV shows um, this year as well. Um, so she just reading the reactions to to her death um, somehow connects with that story for me. Oh, that makes sense. Sure, totally. I, I sadly did not know her work except for the recent stuff, but yeah. So yeah, to, let's just, uh, yeah. Did we get into the Donahue app stuff? What? Uh, what stuff? I've been offline. Jump in. I'm, what, did I, what did I miss? Throw so, us more. So Chris, hey, he, Chris Fahey, uh, who's a designer I know from Overlap, and gosh, what's the name of the coder who did Instapaper or from Arc90, put a little app yeah, together yeah, yeah. that they, they demoed that I was supposed to be part of itself by about a conflicting um, event. And I have to confess I haven't used it. I need to. It's Donahue app, app.com, Donahue with the U-E. And uh, then they had a piece on the list apart about that. We'll get the link up. And I did spend a good bit of time talking with Chris about all the stuff I've done around tumbling and I'm presenting. Um, they're they're kind of half, I would say, halfway there to where I agree with them. I have to write a, a response because I don't, they, they were trying to figure out how to make something at a conference more conversational. They state a bunch of things. I've already stated a bunch of times, but it's great to have designers and real serious coder, you know, look at that. And they were trying to solve how do we get people to, con- to converse, but they wanted to use Twitter. Um, that's the part where I guess we, we would, we would disagree, but they were totally game to have just different points of view there. Um, and I have to use it, but I, my hunches from, from our early conversation is that it would be really useful if you weren't in the actual physical room at the conference, it would give you a more threaded sense of what's going on around the hashtag, um, somewhere else. And it might let you supposedly as a presenter, know what people are thinking now um anyone who's taken i just taught on presenting in in seattle i'm just gonna post a link right now into the chat room of a bunch of visual notes from the most recent version i did um i kind of worked the other way around and what i and it, ironically i also gave a talk at WordCamp seattle trying to say to designers like chris and and um i can't I think the guy's name is bill and i will i will be responding to this in, in blog form I think it's great that they're starting to think about this. I want designers and coders to think about this, but I want to go the other way around. Rather than ram the way we need to converse into the existing platform of Twitter, when there's a live experience with people in the same room, how can we take the things that work about running a live conversation, which you can do without Twitter live in the same room, and make the tools support that better? That's what I'd like to see. And I think if you put the tool in before you learn how to read a room and how to get all of that, here you go, Kevin, phatic communication, all this sort of body language stuff, all the, oh, I hate the word energy, but please geeks come up with a better word for it. But literally that's, there's something you're, re- you're using to sense what's going on in the room. All of that stuff is really critical to being present and knowing what's going on. And if you go to a screen, you're going to lose all of that. You're going to, you're basically choosing to go where you have analog, where you have more data, and you're choosing to have less data by going to Twitter uh, in the room. Right. In the room. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, you're missing, you're missing all that. And um, you're, 
and you make ambiance. And you're making right, and I think one of the reasons to go to the to the tool like Twitter is the same reason people go to PowerPoint. Your squad is the point I'm going to make, and then my response. So you guys are hearing the blog post at a time. You're substituting one emotional crutch for another because that's the role PowerPoint plays when people do that kind of presenting. The stuff you're used to at conferences where you're bored and there's someone up there with a bunch of slides. And if you get into Twitter, there'll be more back and forth, but you're still going to have less of the person in front of you, and they're going to sense less of you, and that's the thing that makes conversation the most juicy is that kind of present social flow. So I love that they're thinking this way. Please keep coding and let's, let's, um, you know, make stuff that helps us sense these things emotionally about each other. Well, so uh, can I I push back a little bit on that? Because one thing that, that you can do with Twitter and with the chat channels is that you can have something going on in parallel with the, with the single voice speaking and then draw on that and go in. And that's the, the kind of stuff we do with the chat room here. Um, and done right, that can enhance the conversation. Yes, there are ways of doing Twitter really wrong in conferences. We had that at, at um, Web2 in 2009 when we, we did it there, where there was a chat room visible only to the audience and not to the person speaking. So it can just be used to destroy the, the connection. But if you if you set it up right in the way that we do it here, where there's three of us looking at it, so while one person's talking, the others can respond to the chat. But, but bear in mind, Kevin... As it is, we are not in a room like as someday we will hopefully be, everyone out there who's listening. And if that were the case, God help us if we were in front of our laptops while you were all kind enough to give us the gift of your presence when we we could actually have you on stage talking, like which really should be the key thing. And so I think it's that. I know I'm a bit unusual and that I've, I've done this live conversational thing for a long time. I am trying to help get the word out and teach how to do it to more people because the goal is the same, which is this works better as a conversation than a presentation. I'm all about that. It's just that I think it's a human skill you can learn to do. And if you stick the tool in live in the room, not when you're not live in the room together, then first of all, you're not in designing the tool I don't think you're not as likely to pick up on the things that are working about live interaction in a room together because those are the things we want to learn from and make work over the physical tool just as designers and coders. And secondarily, you're missing um, – you will – you can read other people live in the room. If you open up the room, you can listen to them. You have to learn the, the human skills to listen to them and to give people the floor and to handle that kind of flow. And if you only feel like that's safe through a piece of technology, you just erase the entire reason to physically go to a conference. So why even have the conference? Because you can do that without the conference. Right. Which I think brings us neatly to, to what Andy's been doing, um, where he's been drawing on Twitter um, and broadcasting that to the, to the world. So I want to bring Andy into this too, because he's been sitting here quietly while we well, um, talk well, about this. First, I, I mean, okay, Andy, lot, first, do you have a th- any thoughts about the stuff we were discussing before we head into the deliciousness of the way that you are, at least in my opinion, the best Tumblr on Twitter? <laughs> you know, I'm going to say no comment. No opinion on the conference conversation on mm. Ariana. I, the, my concern is I could go on for so long and this will never actually talk about what we're here to talk about. <laughs> okay, let's so do I'm, it. Uh, I'm going to bite my tongue. Okay, let's, let's go. So, yes, let's. Tell us about tumbling the entire world into one channel on Twitter. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> that was a little started. 
Yeah, if it were the entire world, I'd be in a real world of hurt right now. Um, you know, well, shall, shall we set up first, give people a little bit, and it just yeah. senses a sense of what this is and why we're so excited to talk to you about it. Now, we can do that, or Andy, you can do it yourself. Would I'll you let you do it. Yourself? I'll let you do it, because frankly, I don't know why the hell I'm here sometimes. <laughs> you so, know. I'd love to hear your perspective. Well, if Robert Siegel's interviewing you, and in all things considered, about the same, except we'll have oh, everything always take. goes back to Siegel. Yeah, we're just copying Robert Siegel. No, Andy is someone who I followed on Twitter long before um, people decided to have revolutions in the Middle East. Uh, in, in the last version, well, the most current version of them, and I noticed that you were. Um, you know, very earnest web kind of guy, and we met, and um, you definitely were involved in crisis camps a lot. If you don't know what crisis camps are, they're a kind of quick uh, bar camp, kind of let's get together and do a bunch of work real quickly. A bunch of tech folks will do that to help, say, if there's a tsunami happening or earthquake in Haiti. So Andy had a lot of experience doing that, but then I think he became quite world famous at this thing I already saw you do before uh, this happened, um, at connecting people uh, from the Middle East during the revolutions a bit to each other, but certainly to Western people and Western media. And you're probably active doing that, especially, uh, what happened in, um, Tunisia and then Egypt. Uh, I'd say, and I think it says this on our, on our site, you went from being, in my opinion, the person who was hired to do digital strategy to support social media, support a bunch of journalists who were really famous at NPR for being journalists to being, really the journalist <laughs> that they had to learn from you how to do the, cause it was a new way to do journalism because you were tumbling. For example, you're in that you're connecting people on the ground. You're, you're finding sources and you became a way to understand fastest. You're kind of feeding the questions people have, which is what's happening. What's the experience like for people who were there? Did this really happen? Is there anything I can do to help? Um, and then, and so there's a sort of blending of um, – there's so many things to ask you about. I just wanted to quickly run down. That's part of why you've become really um, like a hot uh, – I don't know what the word is. Like like a, a, focal, a focus of broader attention on Twitter because you were – because what you did was, was helping make Twitter make sense to a lot of people and helping make these revolutions real to a lot of people. What I find funny about all this is every time the media covers something and there's an internet twist, suddenly it's more important. So if, if you're doing journalism, that's fine. If you're doing journalism on Twitter, suddenly you get an article about yourself in, in various newspapers. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I, I know I'm being a little self-deprecating here, but at the same time, I, I, sometimes this feels a little odd to me because there are so many great people out there who've been using Twitter and other social media tools right. for a long time to produce journalism that you know, why people are talking about this now, I, I have no clue. Um, I, you I, really, I, uh, let's be serious. You really have no clue? Really? Well, I mean, I, obviously, it's it's because I'm I'm covering stuff related to the Middle East and doing it in a way that's more intense than pretty much anyone else. But uh, like someone asked me, when did you what, when did you start doing this kind of work? Was it December? Was it January? And I said, no. The first time I remember doing this on Twitter was when Benazir Bhutto was assassinated in 2007. Right. Right. You know, it's uh, uh, and I wasn't the only one doing it. It's people. Reporters and others who are on Twitter, when breaking news happens, we there are always more questions than answers. So we ask the questions and try to find find the answers. It just so happens that 
you know, in this particular case, I, I was one of the few Western journalists asking questions about Tunisia in late December, early January. Uh, so that got me that got me a little ahead of the game, but. But still, I, you know, I, I don't feel like what I'm doing is rocket science. I just feel like I'm applying the same skills I've used for online disaster right. response, online mm-hmm. you know, everything I've done in my career for the last 17 years online, it's the same stuff. It's, it, just, it's absolutely the same stuff. I mean, that's what I'm saying. I watched you yeah. not change what you're doing, but the world, what was happening in the world first of all is quite extraordinarily. I mean, I right. think that the credit is due to the people risking their lives for freedom in Tunisia is pretty amazing. But... What is is unique, I think, and what got people's attention is the tumbling piece. Not that that's a word they would know, because it's not what you're doing isn't quite the same thing as what they're used to seeing journalism look like. Right. And well, I mean, if you look at my Twitter, but but I want to say it is very much what you would have been doing during a crisis camp or on the web during other kinds of uh, moments, and that's why if you'd been involved in social media or on the web long enough, it would have looked not so different. Right. Which is why. If you look at my Twitter profile, it says I'm an online community organizer because, frankly, I don't know a better way to describe myself. You know, my job has always Tumblr. yeah, exactly. I'm a Tumblr. Well, but you know, Andy, I, yeah. I mean, I do want to jump in, and I know you're being self-deprecating, but I think there's an important distinction that, having also followed you before this whole thing came up, which is what we talk about here and important around this. Yes, other journalists have been online, and other journalists are even really good tumblers. But there's a subtle yet very important distinction for someone who, who's been doing it for 17 years and is what we like to say now is of the web instead of on the web, mm-hmm. who sort of gets the mechanisms of connectedness. And so, yes, there are a lot of journalism, journal, journalists who are online, but many of them... and I'm Almost, almost them, none of them are of the web. There are almost none. Right, what, very few. Right. But, and what they're doing more is seeing, like you said, Twitter, for instance, as another telling channel as opposed to a a more conversational or connected channel like really understanding that this is about a back and forth i think we're seeing more of them starting to see that so i think there's a subtle yet important distinction when you view yourself as all of us do who host the show as an online community person sort of first and a and a news person second that sort of that filter is a very important and distinct filter. And it's not good or bad. I mean, you need the journalists who are going to be out there and just going to rock it down the story, right? Mm-hmm. It's just a little bit different how, you know, you use Twitter, let's say, versus some of, like, a, you know, a CNN anchor. You know what I'm right. saying? Well, I, I, and think, I the- think that's the distinction that, that gives you the 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 poster childness, you know, that and the completion of all this happening at once. Yeah, I mean, I I I think the distinction between me and your typical journalist on Twitter is I have more questions than answers, and I openly admit I don't know what the hell I'm talking about most of the time. Um, Let's slow down for one second because I just for people like, what the hell is this tumbling and what is she talking about? And if you go to uh, the notes and I'm presenting dot com, you'll see this in the bottom. When you're in a broadcast mode, it's one to many, and the notion is you're transferring data and you're an expert. When you switch to uh, it's kind of unpresenting or tumbling mode. Um, you are centered on a question and you're the holder of the question. You do not know the answer. That means there are a lot more points of entry and room for other people to be involved. I just want to like sort of stretch that out for people who, because I'm sure there are a lot of people in the room and will like, let us know people in the chat room, but who are like, how is Andy doing this and why is it different? And why are some journalists who are used to getting in the newspaper and telling you the story that they're the expert on not doing the same thing you're doing? 
And I think what you just mentioned, I know for you, you want to just brush that aside quickly, Andy, but I think isn't how, isn't everything you're doing based on your willingness to very comfortably not know the answer? And I think that's precisely it. I, I feel, you know, I have no concerns about the fact that I'm clueless on lots of different things. I, I th- I'm, I'm used to being clueless in a very public way and admitting when I know something and when I don't. And so uh, rather than try to hide it and talk about the few things I do know, I'd rather say this is the stuff I'm trying to figure out. Do any of you have the right. answers? So um, you're doing collective inquiry and that leaves room for everybody to be an expert on their experience. So just Amira is really like an authority. You know, on right. Her. Exactly. I mean, it's like, um, like what Dan Gilmore and others have said that at, on any given topic, the public will know more on that issue than any given reporter ever will. And I completely buy into that. Uh, I'm I'm not an expert on the Middle East, which is why I'm dodging questions here about how do you feel about this particular general showing up from Virginia? Like, I don't know. I don't. I I honestly don't know. That's the kind of thing I would ask my users or my followers or my community on Twitter to help me figure out because I'm not a Mideast expert. I'd rather I'd just rather throw out as many questions as I can and anything I'm not sure about in order to um, try to find the answers. And that's that's the point. That's the point of like, you know, that understanding that I'm here to both pose questions and, and share answers. It's not about me showing that I have the answer and I have the expertise. And those are not only in order to be in that mode, you have to a be, allow yourself to be vulnerable. Like you said, you don't mind looking stupid. And this is a very different new way of being versus the I must be the expert and get all the answers behind closed doors and then throw up a really well-written piece somewhere or whatever it is that you're doing, you know, in right. business, which, right. which is which is why I think the divide between more traditional journalists and those of us who use social media actively, I, I don't think it's a generational difference. I don't think it's a tech skills difference either. I think it's all about a willingness to be open and be vulnerable in your yeah. professional knowledge and your professional skill set. And, and to hold the question and acknowledge everybody else as having authority and answers and not having your sense that being listened to is because you're an expert, but because you're a great student, you're a great Question, the thing that got my attention first about you, Andy, because mm-hmm. I've been so in this whole vulnerability thing, because for me, I come to this from, as a performer and using, trying to figure out how, what the social value was of the vulnerability that I was doing in these shows, um, was you talking about your daughter. It's your daughter? Yeah. Your daughter, right? Who I don't know if you want to talk about in the show, but you were tweeting quite openly about difficulties she was having developmentally and with health and how you felt about it. And I was like, anytime I see someone open up, uh, in that, that kind of real way about something, those are the people that I connect with. Those are the people I want to support. And those are the people that I want to know what they have to say. Yeah. I mean, when, when my daughter was originally diagnosed on the autism spectrum, I talked about it openly, not only because I wanted to vent about it, but because once again, I didn't know much about it. I just knew what, you know, an average person based on what they saw in the mainstream media knew. And, you know, within the first 24 hours of me acknowledging that on Twitter, I got dozens and dozens of responses, both publicly and privately from people giving me access to resources, recommending doctors, warning me against this or that treatment, pointing me to peer reviewed uh, research on different things and just all around general support you know i'm a strong believer in that it's it's better to admit about a situation than be silent on it because you will always find support whether you're looking for it or not it will be out there yeah so so how did that do you feel like there was a connection between your experience 
online talking about your daughter being on the autism spectrum and then what you learned from that in crisis camps and then how you put that to use by the time or whatever you did by the time you got to Tunisia? You know, I, I don't think there's a connection in the sense that one spawned the other. I think it's just part of the continuum of, you know, my my worldview, just the way I think. Um, you know, I, I started my first online community in 1994 uh, when when I first got out of grad school, and it was for uh, uh, for people who wanted to talk about the role of the web in education. I had just created a website at that point talking about the possible future of how the, the, the classrooms were going to change as Internet access became more prevalent, and people started asking asking me all sorts of questions and wanting my expertise, which I sincerely did not have. So rather than try to pretend that I had the knowledge, I said, okay, let's, let's just all talk among ourselves. Why don't you guys talk to each other and have this be a peer-to-peer conversation rather than all of you directing your energies towards me because I'm just going to keep saying I don't know. And so uh, you know, from that point onwards, all of my work has basically been somehow in- involving online or offline forums to help me figure things out. And so in some ways, it's kind of self-serving. But at the same time, other people get to join the conversation and hopefully benefit from it too. Kevin, any thoughts? Well, this is, and this reminds me of something Theresa Nielsen Hayden said when she was talking about this, which was that um, most journalists um, write the story, publish it on the site, and then go away, you know, to the pub, and that's it; they're done. Um, and what she found was that if she went to the the journalism sites and read the comments, she would often find much more information and follow-ups and, and several more stories that she could write up about herself um, because, the, because the, the journalists had drawn the stories out of the world in, into the web um, and then there was the, the raw material there for, for, for extending the story further in time, which is, it seems to be exactly what you've been doing on Twitter. Well, I, I think it's fairly common. I don't, I don't know how prevalent, but relatively common for reporters to pay attention to the discussion threads related to their stories because it often spawns new ideas. But for me, at least, I, I, I feel like that's too late in the process. I, I see news gathering as an open process from the moment a story is even you know, bubbling up. So uh, you know, I, I started asking questions about Tunisia because no one was talking about Tunisia except Tunisians. And they clearly saw something very interesting and powerful going on there and I thought it was odd that the world wasn't taking taking notice and so you know in late December I started asking are we beginning to witness the beginning of a jasmine revolution I don't know um, but by simply starting that conversation and got more people who were either subject matter experts or or knew the region or just were curious to help me figure things out and it's just grown and grown and grown from there right no I think well, I recognize it was something you were doing at NPR before, was encouraging the other um, reporters and journalists there to, to pay more attention to, this, to the discussion on the site. And you had, because of that, you had better um, conversation threads on NPR than um, most journalism websites had. Is, is that fair? Yeah, well, I, I guess it is fair. It's, it's you know, we've, we've got a, a, a lot of people at at NPR who are interested in social media, particularly at the executive level of the company. And so that's what, what brought me on in the first place is I was running a nonprofit social network called the Digital Divide Network before coming to NPR about four and a half years ago. So even though I've been a professional writer my whole career, I've never been a reporter in, in the traditional sense of the word. Uh, but nonetheless, um, when I was brought on, the, the, the vice president that hired me saw that the work that I was doing in online disaster response and working on the, uh, strategies to bridge the digital divide could be applied to journalism and um 
you know, I, 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 I always knew that, I guess, but it just wasn't my focus in the work before. Uh, so, but the fact that NPR brought me on board and has given me the space to do pretty much anything I want, is, I still find really extraordinary. But, but in a way you are doing it differently than the way it's more traditionally done in that it's not just about you going out and everyone having to tell you first person everything because you're able to speak to people. And that's part of what's fun about, you know, Twitter and where the web has moved is we can see, you know, for me to, to meet, to know any person, even remotely from any of these countries is so thrilling to not have to get it from some stark, fakey, you know, uh, giant head on, on a television set that's supposed to represent their experience. Like, like, do you see what I'm saying? There seems to be a relationship both with you not saying I got to go to Egypt and I got to talk to that person and I'll come back and tell you what they said. You're sort of letting me see that person and you're introducing me to that person. You don't have a problem with me knowing them. Yeah, well, I, if you haven't seen it yet, I would definitely recommend a blog post that uh, Zainab Tufekci wrote not too long ago. She's Tech Sock mm-hmm. on, t- on Twitter, mm-hmm. T-E-C-H-S-O-C, yep. where she, she talked about one of the interviews that I gave. And she basically compared what I'm doing to what anchors on TV do. And, and yes. she said even, th- even though TV anchors have a mass, mass audience, they, there is such a distance between them and the audience just by the way the platform works. Whereas here I am with a small, small fraction of their audience, but yet because of the intimacy, people actually have a relationship with me and can can have a legitimate relationship with me because we're actually talking. And but we're not, actually just- you could be actually talking to Rick Sanchez and you wouldn't have any sense like you knew him because he doesn't behave the way you behave, probably because he came up in a system that said to have right. authority, sound and talk this way. Well, sound was- like you're... You, you're, you're far from people. Sound like, hi, I'm talking like this. Well, I'm glad you asked that question, Andy. You yeah. know, you're just not going to feel close to that person. Right. Well, that was going to be the, the extension of, of my point that since I, I, I haven't grown up within the system of how you're supposed to behave on air, um, I can just be myself. And uh, – you know, and when I am on air, which is occasionally, I still act like I'm myself. You know, I don't put on an NPR voice. I just talk the way we're talking right now because I think people would call me on it. And so I might as well just stick to being me because it seems to be working. Well, well that's kind of interesting because does does NPR get in a larger way how successful having a different voice has been? Because I know from my small amount of experience being on NPR and being in um. In a in a in a pilot for a national show, they want you to deliver the. They have a particular delivery they want. Um, I get no pushback whatsoever. Do you uh, think they, that'll bleed into their other programming? Well, they'll 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 make it a little more like the way you're doing it. You know, who knows? I mean, the, the reality is is that a broadcast format has so many fundamental differences than the way people have conversations on social media that you can't just take one method and plop it on the other and assume it's going to be correct. I think you can you can glean some ideas from each in order to improve the way you're doing things. Uh, I, but you know. Take a look at at call-in radio shows. People, you know, radio stations have had call-in shows for years now, and in some ways, that was an early form of social media because theoretically, anyone can call in and try to have their 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 ideas aired. I, you know, this this whole notion of people contributing to journalism is is as literally as old as journalism itself is in the United States. I, it's just there's something about the broadcast method because you're you're in your studio, you're not looking at people, you don't feel like they're talking back to you in real time that that 
whether that distance is deserved or not, uh, it still seems to exist. And um, while you do have uh, news anchors who are on Twitter, more often than not, they still kind of feel like they're being news anchors to me. There are exceptions, but a lot of them still feel like they're being news anchors, especially when they say, tune in tonight at 10 p.m. and don't tell you anything else. Right. No, I think that's that's, – so voice totally matters. Here's a question from – go, Debs, go. Well, yeah, I was just going to ask people to start getting some questions lined up for us. Um, You know, Andy, I have a a curious question for you because to me the most exciting thing about sort of, you know, whether you like it or not, sort of what's happened around the kind of reporting that you were doing is the fact that, like you even said, you were brought on to sort of be the community collaboration online, whatever NPR was calling it at the time, the social media expert. And, and you, and because of who you are and because you get sort of of the web and have done online community before, you ended up being right in the middle of things and almost more morphing into more of a reporter in mm-hmm. a way. And I was just wondering, A, how that shift felt to you and how it felt at NPR, um, because one of the challenges that I have personally around why we, when we talk about tumbling and the reason we chose this odd word that most people don't know is because we think it's an incredibly strategically important role, and mm-hmm. most people don't treat it that way. And community and organizers so are seen yeah, as the bottom the of the thing. Right. So you're one of the only people I can think of who sort of had that community manager kind of role, which to me is sort of saying like what webmasters used to be. Cause it's right, which is, with, with respect. Which is- which is why I've never really described myself as a community manager. I mean, I see much. Right. I, I see the way I behave much more like a traditional community organizer. I go out, right. I rally people, I find the experts, and I pull them together to solve whatever problem I'm tackling. It's the exact same stuff I've always done throughout my career. So it it, it never really felt like I had this moment where suddenly I was, I, you know, one day I wasn't a journalist and the next day I was. Because every time mm-hmm. there's been a been break, there's been a big breaking news story since Twitter's been around. I've talked about it on Twitter. I've asked questions about right. it. What's made this difference is that with Tunisia, I'd traveled there. I knew a number of people who were part of the tech community there and, and had been following them from the very beginning of this process. So I did have a bit of an insider view on it. But also I just then applied what I always did and just started doing it more and more intensely to the point where you know, I was doing it maybe for an hour or two a day during the end of the Tunisian uprising. But by the time Egypt really hit its stride, I was doing it 16 or 18 hours a day just because I realized I, I had a bunch of people out there who not only were depending on me on doing this, but also knew how to help me. And so uh, it's, it's, I've just felt it's been absolutely necessary for me to c- continue with this level to see through the story as best as possible. When someone can how help much, you, what, what? Attribute, how much do you attribute – sorry, Heather, I just wanted to do a follow-up. How much do you attribute the fact that you knew some people on the ground and had relationships with people either offline or online – before the story broke to your ability to sort of rally people because i think that's also a big thing you know you sort of uh, you know good networks are 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 built before you need them in a weird way and they come to your aid sort of in the moment so i was wondering did you, did you find that to be a big help or not or difference in this particular instance well, let's put it this way. I think the worst thing a journalist could do is when there's a breaking news story, create a Twitter account and ask people for help. So right. – uh, but not, I'm not necessarily doing the opposite of that. It's – you know, I'm on Twitter just because I, I happen to be there and it's, it's one of the right. places that I consider home and, and play, it's a place – 
even though I don't like calling it a place, it's an environment where there are people I want to be talking to in the same way that I talk to people in the real world because I don't really distinguish the difference between the two. Um, so when it, when it comes to stories like this, yes, it definitely helped that I knew people in Tunisia and in Egypt and have traveled to half, you know, half a dozen uh, Middle Eastern countries and 10 or so Islamic countries uh, or Muslim majority co- countries. So having that ba- that information helped and essentially having cultivated sources helped but you know when the um when earthquakes happened in, in Haiti last year and in Japan this year, I didn't have any sources in either place. I just knew how to ask the questions and how to reach out to people to find out information quickly. And so, um, you know, if suddenly there was an uprising in Venezuela tomorrow, I, I don't feel like I'd be on top of things in the sense that I don't know anyone in this Venezuela, don't have close contacts there. But having said that, I feel like that I've got a critical mass of people who are part of my community on Twitter that if I simply asked the right questions, I could catch up very, very quickly. When you said, when you said, um, I knew there were people who could help me in, the, in terms of the people who were lying and you to be up there, who, who specifically, and I don't mean like the names of these people, but what, what, well, who is, who are you looking to in any situation? Like, do you look for like, like who's the first coder I can find? Like, is there a particular tenants you have and what, what you're looking for? There's, and these people who can help you, and how do they help you? I look for the people that are right for the situation. It's as simple as that. You know, if if uh, there's an earthquake somewhere, I asked, who do you know that's on the ground there? Do you have any? Are you are you talking to any aid organizations? If you're if you're with an aid organization, have you rolled out a plan yet? So uh, I just ask those questions, and and usually the answers come pretty quickly. Uh, in other cases, like you know, going back to Hurricane Gustav in 2008 and Katrina back in 2005, there were certain things I wanted to do but didn't have the technical skill set to do, you know, creating databases and visualizations and the like. So rather than asking people, you know, tell me the news, I'd say, tell me if you can code. And here, here's an in-group that I created where you can go hang out with us and try to figure out what projects we can work on. And so in many ways, the work that I'm doing with, you know, journalism in the Middle East is uh, a is an evolution of the work I've done in online disaster response, which is a, which is uh, an evolution of the work I did on bridging the digital divide, which in turn was an evolution of the work that I did trying to uh, get teachers more aware of of the role of technology in the classroom. It's it's all to me. It's all one incremental spectrum to me. And and how would you link those things, or is there a, how do you, what are, what's at the heart of them? Conversation conversation and admitting when I need help and when I think there's something important to be done and I don't have the ability to do it myself. Um, I've always been more than happy to get online and and, and offer a rallying cry if I think there's something that needed to be done uh, before coming to NPR since essentially I was involved in uh, community organizing and activism related to education technology and the digital divide. I could be very explicit in saying, you know, let's solve this goal or that goal or tackle this policy issue or whatever. with, you know, being at NPR, it's a bit different now because, uh, you know, I really can't be a, a community organizer in, in the traditional political sense anymore. But what I can do is organize people's knowledge in order to make our journalism better. And as far as I'm concerned, it's the same skill set, the same type of conversation. We're just applying it in a different way. Are you helping the people on the ground, not just for reporting, but the people who are, say, holding a revolt? Are you trying to help them communicate with one another? <laughs> 
I, w- I wouldn't say that I'm trying to help the people directly in, in the revolutions. You know, it's that that's a line that can that once you cross can be very difficult to come back. It's you know, as I would lose my credibility as a news gatherer and a reporter if I started saying, you know, go revolution, go, and here's some information on on what you can do to uh, target these forces over here. I mean, that's you know, that's that would be direct involvement. What I, I see my role is is trying to document everything that I can find that's going on, get questions answered so not only I can bear witness but everyone else can as well. Now, of course, that raises the question, does some of this knowledge indirectly end up helping one side or the other? I think sometimes it probably does, but you, you could make the argument that it's it's helped the opposition in some some countries, but I generally argue if that's the case, it's because the regimes weren't online uh, or weren't using the internet effectively. Or compare that to a country like Bahrain, where the uh, where the government is very internet savvy and the the population is pretty much divided between people who support the opposition and people who don't. So the kinds of stuff that I'm sharing and talking about could easily be used by either side in that case. And so it's just been it's it's been difficult to cover the social media in a quote-unquote balanced way because, frankly, some of these countries haven't been good at, at using social media or haven't been using it at all. And so in those cases, I focused on the opposition because, frankly, they've been a lot more interesting. Uh, we've got quite lots of questions here from people. Um, uh, Alex Tetro wants to know, do you have a hard time keeping focus because you, aren't you following like so many sources, not just different tweet feeds, but mainstream media, blogs, articles, TV? So how do you keep yourself above that and not drown in it? Um, I know when to tune out and when to ignore things that I don't think are relevant. Um, there are days that will go by where I don't even look at my stream of friends on Twitter. And it's it's nothing personal, but when I'm juggling Libya and Yemen and Bahrain and Syria and you know, wherever else on the exact same day, uh, my friends are going to have to wait. Uh, same way with any of my casual uh, online viewing of tech blogs or TMZ or whatever it is that I enjoy checking out just for the hell of it. Um, so I, I can multitask pretty well, but I also know what my limits are. And so, you know, it was one thing when just Tunisia was going on, I felt like I could still keep up and do all these other things and do my regular work. But there there was a point, some point during um, during Egypt where things just got so uh, complex that uh, I really had to like stop going to meetings, stop responding to emails and just focus. And um, it's worked fairly well. Wow. Okay. This is going to slow down a little bit. Cause like, you're like, I can just imagine you going at that speed. Cause even just the way you're talking, like I got, yeah, like Mars is, is noticing you, you have incredible focus and you're definitely noticing what's going on. So that seems to me to lead to what, tools and how do you split your streams so how are you following like do you do what what app do you use and do you make your do you you divide your your streams up by Bahrain Tunisia does each event news event get multiple lists how do you do it uh, it varies. Um, when Tunisia was going on, it was as simple as following the Sidi Bouzida hashtag because um, frankly it wasn't polluted yet Hashtags are extraordinarily valuable until everyone knows about them. Uh, and at that point, you have to worry about spammers and bots and, and frankly, just people passing along mainstream news stories. And it just it just dilutes the feed. And so, so in the case of uh, Tunisia and to a lesser extent Egypt, 
I was able to focus a lot on just following the hashtags that I knew were being used by the people on the scene. Uh, But then at some point during Egypt, I started creating an Egypt uh, Twitter list to just get more focused at it and uh, start with the people I already knew in Egypt and then pay attention to who they seemed to trust and who they were talking to and who they seemed to have an intimacy with online. Um, So, Sorry about that. That's all right. Um, So... I'll just wait for that to stop running. Yeah, we we dropped. I don't know who it was. Deb, you back? Yeah, sorry about that. Go ahead, guys. Okay, so 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 you're saying um, that the hashtags are valuable until they become polluted. Uh, well, until by, they become uh, by popular. Once a, yeah, once a, a hashtag goes mainstream, I find it pretty useless as a news gathering tool. And so, so, so is it is it that it shows up on the Twitter front page? Is that the point? It dies or? Yeah, the worst thing that – the greatest curse that can happen to a useful hashtag is for it to go trend. Uh, No, seriously. uh, Oh, my God. That so supports everything we've been saying on the show for years. I'm sorry to say it, but like this idea of popularity kills relevance a lot of the time, which is actually where true influence lies. All of these so many freaking people and their news articles and supposed apps that pick out how influential somebody is. But that kind of stuff, those trends are made because you can build a business around it. I mean, you could build a business around – doing another way if you could redesign twitter what would you do andy with the hashtags oh that's a good question um it's it's tough i would want there to be ways to filter out the crap (laughs) no i'm serious no because i don't care what celebrities are saying with a particular hashtag i want i care about the people who are getting shot at and the people who are recording the videos um and it's it can be very difficult at times to separate the signal from the noise. But having said that, I feel like I've developed a routine where I can do it because I'm using hashtags less and using either Twitter lists more or simply paying attention to certain Twitter accounts with ever, without ever acknowledging that I'm even following them. Because there, there are certain people on Twitter that I know if I added them to a Twitter list, either public or private, it, would pro- it could get them killed. Um, right. It's as simple as that. I've, 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 I've known a couple of people now who've been killed over the last month and a half, and I don't think I've necessarily contributed to any of that. But the fact that they were had online presences certainly made them targets. Um, specifically, Mohammed Nabus, who was killed in Benghazi several weeks back. Uh, so, um, but there are there are just certain sources that I find so valuable that I will I won't even subscribe to their Twitter feed. I will just know when to, uh, you know manually type it in and see what they're doing, or or uh, uh, or find some other method of doing it because I don't want to expose them. But for the average person that I'm following, that I, I don't feel is is a major security risk, and or they're so open about where they're what they're doing, it doesn't really matter. Then I'll I tend to use public lists for that. But I've got some private ones too. Um, uh, and I pay a lot of attention. I take a lot of attention on the people that I'm following and who they're talking to because that's how you find out who they trust. Mm. And that's how you expand your base. When I started with Egypt, I knew maybe five or six people on the ground. By the time Mubarak was out, I probably had a network of around 100 people that I felt were pretty reliable. Um, and it wasn't because I kept hunting for them directly myself. It's just... I spent a lot of time paying attention to the conversations I already knew existed. Sorry, I feel like I need a little 
sigh after each <laughs> after each little nugget of uh, of information. I need to process it. Okay, we've also got here's here's another um, another question. Uh, do you how do you keep yourself from burning out? Carol V twenty seven wants to know because sometimes you are tweeting crazy amounts of um, hours a day, and you've been at this pace. She's saying since December because you know it's been revolution time nonstop. Could you say that a bit again? I was responding to someone on the it's chat, right. and I, I, I only caught the second part of the question. Carol V twenty seven wants to know that because you're starting tweeting early in the morning, going late tonight, and been doing this since December. How do you keep yourself from burning out? I have no idea. Um, I, I I don't have a great answer to that because it's kind of shocking that I haven't. Um, I think it helps that I generally try to unplug from around six o'clock to eight o'clock each night, so I can make dinner. Um, give the kids a bath, read to them and get them help get them to bed. Uh, and then I'll try to be a little slow after that just so I've got some chill time with my wife. But then when she goes back to bed, I'm usually on the clock for another hour or two. Uh, but you also have to understand I'm not sitting in front of a, a desktop while all this is going on. I mean people – well, there, there were times during what was going on in Libya where people were sending me tweets praying for my safety because they thought I was tweeting from Tripoli and Benghazi. Benghazi but in reality, I was laying out a pool at a pool – laying out at a pool in Palm Springs waiting for the next TED active session to begin. You know, it's I, as long as I've got my phone within arm's reach, I can do 90% of this work from anywhere on the planet as long as there's internet access. And so because of that, it takes a hell of a lot of the stress out of it. You know, I don't work crazy hours at, at the office. In fact, I'm there more often than I'm not, I, I'm at NPR less than six hours a day. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I try to go to events in D.C. that are related to this stuff. I've been speaking at a lot of conferences. But also, you know, I'm getting just as much done as I at home and on the train as I do at work. So it honestly doesn't matter where I am unless I need to physically talk to someone in person. I mean, it's like your standard geek life, right? Like, go wherever, exactly. stay connected to everybody. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, I guess let's like make explicit what we've known that at least I'm sure the four of us have done a long time, although obviously he's doing it publicly in a different way. Like, you know, the annoying person who's on their phone all the time because they're with people. And then when the stuff happens and he's already connected to people and they have a level of trust because he's been vulnerable with them, whether it's yeah. about his daughter's life and he's a human being, he's not saying I'm the most important authority of all time. And then you're able to, it's about how much you get done, not FaceTime. It's about serving other people's experience, not claiming that you know everything. I mean, all these are, these are things that have been true of web culture for a long time. Um, right. And I think it's interesting. These are the things I know that sometimes we'd call the show like a little corner of the old web because it's part of what was so wonderful about it for people who came to it and loved it was that kind of connection with people. And we really believe these these are valuable things. And then when when kind of celebrity culture has come to the web and attempt to do mainstream media on top of it, um, it's been easy to not see this stuff uh, filter up and, and honestly what part of what's been so delightful I mean not only meaningful about what you're doing is to see these values play like I don't know that it's understood in mainstream media that this is why this is working for you but they seem kind of obvious to us anyway and, and kind of nice yeah I mean I think part of it is that you know even though I'm, I'm not of the age demographic to be a digital native since I'm in my late 30s, I consider myself a digital native because I've been using computers since the late 70s. I first went online, let me do the math, 27 years ago, 1984, okay. you know, Have when you, I was 13. You've been, uh, when did you start with the web? 
1993, I guess. Yeah, I think if you I mean, had 15 years in the web, you're a digital native. Yeah, I mean, you know, back when, um, but you know, not the yeah, way yeah. most people talk about it. Yeah, like when people mention Yahoo, I still think of Akibono. So if that means anything to anyone, so uh, because that was the name of one of the, the servers they used. So yeah, in that sense, I'm a, I, in that sense, I am a digital native. But I think it's just because I, I, I you know, I grew up in near NASA in Central Florida. We had computers in the classroom in the late seventies. I, you know, I, I built some computers with my dad when I was 10, 12 years old and geeked out for a while and then burnt out after that and decided to become a rhetoric major in college just to rebel. Um, so you know, it's this. It's just it's just part of who I am, which is why I don't feel like I'm working my ass off because eighty percent of what I'm doing, it doesn't feel like it. it doesn't. You feel would like have it's done work. it anyway. Well, how about I, w- I would the- have I would have done it. Not only would I do it anyway, I I, I thoroughly love what I'm doing. You know, it's there's very nothing, energizing. I, th- yeah. There's nothing I'd rather be doing right now. That's a wonderful thing to say. Do you, but how about some of the tr- secondhand trauma thing with some of the stuff you're looking at? Is yeah. I mean horrible. You said you just talked about how many people you know have been killed recently. You're getting to know people, which I know maybe people like Sherry Turkle don't feel like you really know them. But don't you feel like you really know these people and you haven't gotten to see them yet in person? Yeah, well, you know, you know, I haven't met all of you guys in person. For example, um, I haven't met the majority of you I'm talking to uh, in the chat room right now, or that are listening. But at the same time, there are people online that I've had friendships with for 15 plus years um and it's it's not necessarily the time span that makes a relationship strong but i'm just used to having friends online i I don't see the difference um you know as long as it's it's a relationship and reciprocal and we feel like we're getting something out of it it's fine um but that also plays out in difficult ways when you're covering situations like this because um you start you you know take Bahrain for example. I started developing a rapport with a number of of protesters there, and it, n- not much was going on. They were they were organizing, they were holding rallies, but things were pretty quiet. And then all of a sudden, one night, pe- uh, police started opening fire on them and uh, you know shooting guns at them and tear gas and setting tents on fire. And I, I was I was at a restaurant in D.C. waiting in line to get into the men's room, and I looked on my phone and suddenly saw all of these sources of mine screaming. Uh, they were saying we're being shot at. The, you know, the women and kids are trying to huddle in the center so they don't get hit. Uh, one other person wrote, "I'm with a, a seven-year-old boy. He's been separated from his his parents. He's so scared. He's throwing up right now." You know, I just completely froze in my tracks because I haven't met these people. I'm not. I haven't seen this. Ha- I don't see this happening. Uh, you know, visually, and I'm not hearing it. But since I, I've gotten to know these people and I'm hearing their panic in real time, I feel their panic as well. And in some ways, it's kind of like reading a book. The reason why reading can be so such a uh, an enriching experience because it's all in your head. You mm-hmm. don't have the vis- You can't fall back on the visuals or the audio. It's completely your imagination. And so. Hearing all these people essentially screaming and panicking on Twitter, I think, was exponentially more traumatic than if I had just seen the video sometime afterwards. Oh, I I imagine that's that's right. Are you getting any support or help for that? Is NPR offering you whatever they offer the other? Yeah, yeah, they are. I mean, there's there's only so much they can do right now because you know people keep asking me, "Do you think you've got post traumatic stress disorder?" I'm like, "Well, I don't think I can have post traumatic stress because the trauma is ongoing right now." You know, ask me when it's over. So it's um, 
you know, I try to stay as grounded with this as I can. And if, if I see something that freaks me, freaks me out, I, I'm open about it because being able to vent that and get emotional about it for a while, I find very cathartic. So in those horrible circumstances where I've seen footage of like children who've been killed or something, I I'll sometimes throw a bit of a tantrum online, but it's because of my my anger and frustration and shock. If I keep that to myself, I, I'd lose my mind. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons to be vulnerable, like maybe about your daughter or anything. Like I, being with other people is helpful. It's a way of being with people. Yeah. Um, uh, someone wants to know, you talked about how you're helping protect sources by not being seen to follow their Twitter feed. So how are you? You're able to do it in kind of a private way you're talking about? Well, all I meant by that is like there, there are a small number of people who um, are, are tweeting somewhat on the down low and are somewhat cryptic about it and um, usually under pseudonyms. And I don't want to take the chance of, of following, you know, actually following their account or adding them to a Twitter list because I'm pretty sure my account's being monitored by every intelligence service in the Mideast at this point. You know, that's not paranoia. I think that's just the reality of, of the way uh, wars play out now. And so uh, if – if I really want to have a good, you know, some, some of my best sources are people that I will never, I, I will never link to publicly. I will never talk about publicly. Uh, the, I, the only way I might communicate with them is over the phone or Skype, and that's it. I won't leave an, even leave an email paper trail, um, and um, uh, this, preferably phones are better because even with Skype, I don't want people to see who I'm friends with if they if they hacked into my account. So um, for the most sensitive sources, I I try to leave no paper trail whatsoever. But that's you know that's what journalists do. It's this this isn't and news. paranoid it's, hackers and paranoid <laughs> hackers. Yeah, uh, but you the know skill sets come together. But at the same time, I, I don't have to do that most of the time. I mean the vast majority of the time, uh, the people who are tweeting and sharing this stuff, they're using their real names. Um, I remember a couple – about a week and a half after the Tunisian revolution and uh, ousted the president, a um, Tunisian contact of mine who I hadn't seen in five or six years, she happened to be in D.C. for an event. And so I invited over her over to NPR to talk about what happened in the revolution. And uh, at one point I – I can't remember if I asked them – or someone else asked her, you know, why is it that you all felt comfortable using your real names and using Facebook since Facebook, it's hard to, to, to hide behind aliases without getting caught. And she said, well, we were, at, we were past the point of no return. By the time she and others got involved in the protests, the, uh, the choices were they would succeed, they would be arrested, or they would be killed. It was as simple as that. And so if they can get more done by being open about who they are, so be it. And that's what people did. Same thing with Mohammed Naboos in Benghazi. You know, he didn't use an alias. He was Mohammed Naboos from day one. I mean, hell, people just called him Mo because that's what his family called him and his friends called him. He well, was luckily for you, is fewer characters. Right, exactly. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, in his case, he, he was targeted by a sniper and taken out. Um but you know, for the that's that's the exception and not the rule. Um, there are there are many amazing people in these various countries who are tweeting under their real names or posting on Facebook under their real names because they're they're just simply not afraid anymore. 
I have more wow. questions here from both yeah. chat and Twitter, but Deb, I want to let you, you know, j- jump in. Oh, I was just going to, I was going to jump in with one or two questions. I'm trying to keep track of them all. And Elizabeth, Great. who's new to our chat room, I wanted to know, um, should we do the same? Andy takes, take the same precautions as you. I'm going to assume that Elizabeth is also a journalist. So um, I'm curious, do you have, um, you know, thoughts that this is the way that people are covering live events? Or there's there's also citizen journalism now, right? People are right. There's right. a lot more people who are not official journalists with the web skill set you have, Andy, than official right. journalists who have it. Like the you three know, of us probably do this more than a lot of trained journalists do. Right. And this has actually been an interesting question that's been raised on several occasions. Should I actually try to offer some form of media literacy training to my sources and to citizen journalists, journalists yeah. in general, so they can be better at supplying me information? Part of me thinks that's a great idea. But at the same time, the vast majority of the people who are doing this are of a clear political persuasion and they're on one side of the argument. They're generally members of the opposition. So if I went and, and basically created created a checklist of all the best things you can do to protect people and share information secretly. Have I just given right. uh, gorillas the ability? Craft, yeah. Exactly. It's, it's, it's tradecraft. Exactly. So there's, there are some things I'm open about simply because either I think it's obvious or because it's open source enough that people are going to find it either way. But there's st- some things I'm just never going to tell anyone, period. It's in the same way that you know other reporters you know, who are working with very sensitive sources. Will, will you, you tell know, other journalists or other like recent people that the NPR might hire? Andrew has that one to know, like if they're going to hire some NPR's going to hire some people that you can like well, in that case, sure. You know, like I'll, I'll 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 sit over coffee with a colleague at work, you know, exchanging notes on the best ways to protect sources or or whatever. But that's different because we're we're in person and we're we're both very very sensitive to this. And if we hired people to help me do this kind of stuff, yeah, theoretically, I'd probably do it with them as well. Would I hold a, host a webinar on it? Doubtful. Yeah. Um, right. Not going to write a blog post. <laughs> I'm not gonna, yeah, and if I do, do it. it's if I do it's going to basically be introduction to the obvious. You know, it's stuff that right. anyone who's spent a little bit of time doing this knows, and certainly the regimes under, understand how this stuff works. And so, um, I'm under no illusions th- uh, about you know who, who's following me and all that. And so, the last thing I want to do is give a roadmap to anyone about who I find reliable and who I don't. You know, you can glean some of that simply by who I retweet and who I re- don't, uh, who I don't certainly. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily convey the whole story either. Uh, yeah, can I have more um, questions, Deb? So, uh, yeah, actually, I have one more question that I tracked, and we're, we're all tracking a couple here. So, Myers, who's a regular in our chat room, wanted to know, and I think it was in response to you saying that you know that you're being followed by all Middle East intelligence. Yep. Do you have contacts as a result of what you've been doing in the national intel infrastructure, as in the American? And you can yeah, share with, that or not. Have they reached out to you? Um, I, no, I, I feel pretty comfortable saying that I haven't talked to anyone in the U.S. intel community. I wouldn't be surprised if some of them are paying attention to me. But I no no one's approached me. I have I, and you know if if I did I wouldn't really cooperate with them anyway because you know that, that's not what I'm that's not my job. Uh, I, I do know for a fact that there are people within the administration that follow me, um, and and that's that's no secret. I mean. Like uh, Susan Rice, our UN ambassador, she she did a, a follow Friday for me a few weeks back. So okay, that's pretty straightforward. I know she and her, and her team are following me, um, and and there are others that you know 
if if they decide to follow me, that's great, I suppose. But they're free to do it as anyone else. But it, it does raise some tantalizing questions about what if I'm having an impact one way or another. And I honestly don't know the answer to that. I you know there's a lot of speculation I've heard and a lot of theories about what impact I may or may not have. But I I don't have anything measurable. Right, and I would so, I would say just keep doing what you're doing. Let others worry about. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. I mean, you don't find reporters who do the cover stories. I mean, you just keep doing what you're doing, and that's like some PhD student will write something about it or whatever. That's not your judge, right? Just letting everybody know, we don't have a ton of time in the regular show that we have an after show. Fandy's going to, are you willing to stick around and chat some more? Yeah, I can stick around for a bit. Okay, so we uh, do, that's that's part of the bonus, just letting people know listen to Tunnel Vision. If you come live as part of this, there's like pre and post time with our guests, which is really fun. So go ahead, Andy. Yeah, I was just going to say that um, – what was I going to say? I, I just totally lost my train. That's all right. <laughs> um, there's plenty more trains. What were we just so, talking about? Because I had so, a, a semi oh, You were about letting the, the PhD student write yeah, yeah, the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. So in some ways, the act – being active on Twitter is akin to the Hawthorne effect or what some people uh, erroneously call uh, the Heisenberg effect, this notion of that by viewing sim- – the simple act of viewing an experiment causes the results of the experiment to change. In this particular case, I think the simple act of me retweeting anything or saying anything has the potential in, the potential to change something somewhere. Uh, so I just have to not dwell on that because, you know, there are people on all sides of these fights that are following me and my information could be used for good or ill. So I just have to try to be smart about what I, what I want to share and, and what I want to report on and be sensitive to things that I think would be dumb to post. So the thing you said about the point of no return reminded me of a conversation I had with Adriana Lukas about this because um, she was in the the um, Czechoslovakian revolution um, and she was comparing that with, with now and saying then the point of no return was when everyone assembled in the street and then they could see um, how many people agreed with them. Before that, they'd been sneaking around in basements and they didn't know who was who was there. But they, they assembled in Wenceslas Square and suddenly there were thousands of people there um, and that was the point at which they knew that it would succeed. And that was the, um, you know, I was wondering how that, how that was different for, the, for those in, in Egypt or Tunisia. Had they already got that sense of the point of no return online before they started gathering in public? Well, some of the people in Tunisia I talked to said that they started feeling they felt the point of no return before they even stepped outside simply mm-hmm. because they saw what was going on in Facebook and they felt the solidarity around them. It's going to be different from country to country uh, because, you know, Tunisia is a place that historically has not had public protest in a very long time, but at the same time has 2 million out of a population of around 11 million people on Facebook. So uh, it's not a huge surprise that people develop their their solidarity and their courage to a certain extent online. In Egypt, I think it's a bit different because there's a much longer history of their dissent in public, uh, even though there are plenty of bloggers there online who are political uh, bloggers. The, you know, There are some of the people who've been involved who are involved in the Egyptian revolution have been arrested on and off for the last 10 or 15 years. This isn't new to them. Mm-hmm. It's, a, this, it's, just, it's, a, it's a new front to them. Uh, and so I, th- I think for a lot of folks, they got their courage through Al Jazeera, frankly. 
you know, by uh, by monitoring what was going on in Al Jazeera, uh, it made them feel more comfortable to go out. And I'm not just talking about going out with their fellow Tunisians or fellow Egyptians, but look what's happened in all these other countries. You know, would we have seen this domino effect if these other countries had successfully uh, censored these revolutions? Probably not. I just want to say that if I had, if and someday we will have, you know, the, the, the pull to do it, I would have so wanted to do a special show with you and Malcolm Gladwell. That would just be so delightful. Oh, I can't boy. even tell you. And then somebody who's been on the ground in one of these countries, that would be great. We don't have a ton of time, so I want to just ask a couple little things people asked here. And let me and, just say, I'll, I'll pass on. Go ahead. That wouldn't just be so fun for you. No, I mean, if we if we could keep (laughs) five five minutes or less, that'd be great. But like, just to give you an example, at one point. Actually, on several occasions, people have tried to invite me into debates on whether or not social media has impacted these revolutions or if Twitter is playing a role in journalism. And my response always is, I'm sorry, I'm talking right now to protesters on Twitter and I don't have time to do this. And I, I don't intend that to be snarky. It's, it's, it's entirely true when I've said it. And I think that answers the question right there. From my perspective and the people that I'm interacting with on the ground, they believe it's true and the governments that keep trying to shut down on the internet they believe it's true so as far as i'm concerned it is true and yeah and for me that and and by the way if you were here we because we would want collective inquiry we wouldn't ask that question oh because i know it's not a question we wouldn't want to debate we'd want something we could figure out that he could actually maybe help with but i just think it would be interesting to do something together in part because he's just a uh, to me an image of people who don't yet understand how this works and so it would be nice to see this this mode of inquiry this mode of doing stuff grow uh, and have more people do it uh, at least that we'd like to see that in about how you feel about it um here's a couple things people want to know real quick what iphone twitter app do you use um i i use a couple that for for browsing Twitter lists, I use TweetDeck. For doing a lot of retweeting and talking to people, I tend to use the native Twitter app. Um, neither of them is perfect. Have you tried TweetBot? Not yet. Um, just, I just started this week. It's been it's been pretty good for me. I'm yeah. I'm, the I'm, lists, though. I'm you know I'm waiting to hear a few more reviews from people, and I'm sure I'll I'll I'll, I'll try it sooner rather than later. But I just like to have one day that's quieter than most. I understand that. Okay, how about have you had a lot of siren goes off outside your apartment? Have you had (laughs) trolls come after you now? Uh, Myers wants to know about Fox, but yeah, I mean, have you been politicized as a journalist because of like by other people? No, not at all. Um, I think because I can't keep my mouth shut anyway, and people expect me to say what I'm going to say, and at the same time, I'm not dumb enough to talk politics. I I consider myself fairly harmless. And here's here's your final question from Mr. Snark online, which I really think is a fun question. So let's say you get a MacArthur grant. What would you do with the money? <laughs> well, first of all, I'm, that's a great one. That, that's funny. First of all, I'm, I'm not going it's to get It's funny. MacArthur. It's flattering. Totally but, getting one. Totally getting one. But go ahead. I'm, I'm not going to get one. Um, yeah. but you are the. I just want to say, I've said in the chat room, you are the Bono of, of uh, tumbling. You know, oh, right now you are. You're the best you tumbler we have, and we're you're talking about like we try to do pretty hard. I do it live in the room pretty good, but man, unbelievable. Although oh, Marshall, nice. Marshall it. and you, Marshall Kirkpatrick, can have who I whom by the way is to me the Lady Gaga of Chuck. Just so you understand the company I'm putting you in. Right, right. <laughs> I, I would like to see you guys have a little um, list off because man, that guy can can well, work. 
Samara Marshall, Marshall and I basically came up together in very similar ways because while I was at the Digital Divide Network, he was uh, doing a lot of work with nonprofit technology. So we crossed paths all the time. And um, I mean, I remember him interviewing me. I don't know when it was, maybe 2004, 2005. So, um, you know, I, I think in, in many ways where, you know, we're compatriots in this type of work because this is just the way we think. And, uh, you know, finding people who think the way you do can go a long way and, and, and getting each other to understand how you're working. But to go back to this whole grant thing, I mean, I don't expect anyone to be, anyone to be writing me a check anytime soon. Um, if I did, you know, I, honestly, I, w- I would start by paying some bills. <laughs> um, right. You know, I, I, you know, we're a single income household because of the situation with my daughter. Um, so how's she doing and, and how old is she? she by she's, 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 wants to know. She's doing awesome. She's uh, almost five, um, and she's going to be mainstreamed into kindergarten uh, next year when she enters kindergarten because she is awesome. she's absolutely kicked ass over the Yay. last year. Um, and we've got the right people working with her, and we don't waste our time on these BS uh, autism cures or anything. We just know how, how she thinks, and so we try to think the same way and work with her that way, and it works. Uh, so yeah, so but 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 still, uh, you know, going back to the money question, I honestly don't know. Um, you know, okay. it's it's it's, well, it's like if if you won a lottery, what would you do with the money? Well, you deal with your first first deal with your fi- financial issues, and then free yourself up to do what you love. The funny thing is, is what I love doing right now happens to be my day job, and so all right. Um, well, would you want to do Tony something? Comstock in our chat room just said, if you already love what you do, you already have a MacArthur Grant. Thank you, Tony Comstock. Beautiful. That's pretty awesome. Yes. Although, would you be want to? Is there something you'd want to do to help more people do what you're doing? I don't know. That's that's a good question. I, you know, I, we're already having conversations internally at NPR on what we might do to be able to scale this into different contexts. And so, um, I don't think it's necessarily a matter of me personally trying to raise money when I've got the bully pulpit of NPR to help me do exactly the same well, thing. Well, speaking of bully pulpit of NPR, I don't know if you saw the earlier conversation in the chat, but I want to let everyone listening to the show know that um, some people are proposing a little hashtag: Give for Andy. And if you donate to NPR and you, oh, it look- already exists. Let me tell you the story here because this already exists. Um, so um, in the days preceding Mubarak resigning, I started getting private messages from people saying, hey, Andy, great job. Can I send you some cash? And that really put me in an awkward position because, you know, NPR ethics rules, that's a, that's a big no-no. And so when I tell people that, they'd say, well, do you have a favorite charity in the Middle East I can donate to? I'm like, well, that's also a no-no. I, I, I can't endorse a charity, especially related to something I'm covering right now. And so after a little while, I, I finally said, well, you know, if you really want to support me, just, you know – Write a check to your local station and, and, and tell them they support the kind of work I do because it, it'll give them some money and also help tell them that you, they, that you take digital journalism seriously. Um, and as the days went by, so many people were asking me the same question. I finally said publicly on Twitter, look, if, if you're sincerely interested in supporting, my fina- supporting me financially, write a check to your local NPR station. And if you're comfortable doing it, say the name of your station on Twitter, say the amount you gave them, and use the hashtag gave for Andy. And in the first 24 hours, we probably raised three, $4,000. Um, uh, 
Steve Garfield uh, of the video blogger in Boston wrote a twelve hundred dollar check. Him. God, so God bless Steve. Steve Garfield, who Steve. I love, is like really the first person of vlogging, and I want to always quote him. It's my one of my favorite things from him is he says, "I, I subscribe to people." I don't subscribe exactly. to feeds. I don't subscribe to such and such brands. I subscribe exactly. to people, and that is—that's just the truth of, of how this. We should works. have. We we got to get Steve on the show. Actually, you should. We should. We will. He's he's. he's we'll add um, him to the list. Again, again, I just want to play with with Blake Marshall, like Andy, a genuine person who sincerely cares about people and doesn't just want to, you know, have that be some kind of special brand. Like that's just who he is. And he will help anybody he can. And that desire to help other people, I mean, Andy, you know, we're unfortunately going to have to wrap Tumble Vision itself because we could obviously talk to you for a long time and stay tuned in the come for the uh, after show. If you'd like, mm-hmm. we may put up a little bonus Absolutely. content on the sites. But, um, you know, just I want to let, you know, Deb and Kevin get a last chance to say something to you. But I want to tell you, I want to thank you for everything you've done and in part for by by what you've done Give, given again um, visibility to, I think, what are the, the best values of the web? Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. Deb, uh, I I could I can't agree more. Um, to me, the the fact that you know lead by example and demonstrating what works um, and and doing it in a way that helps both your industry as well as those around and on both sides of and all sides of the circle is a really important thing and i um i would i would love to spread more of the tumbling love about what andy does so maybe we'll check back in when you take uh, a, a more of a break and see how things have changed over time because right now you're living in the midst of the fury so we thanks think we can have you back in a few months yeah let's definitely plan on that a final word from you kevin to Andy? Just, just to say thanks very much for, for coming. And, and um, I, I agree that um, getting people to donate to NPR is a, is a, is a very um, smart idea. And in some ways, um, I think um, PBS and NPR have the right business model for the web where you encourage people to pay for things so that other people can hear them, not just themselves. Right. I mean, you know, you you sometimes hear other news organizations saying, well, why don't we adopt an NPR news model to uh, to save ourselves? Well, you know, the reality is it's taken NPR 40 years. You know, it's taken us 40 years for us to get pretty good at this, and it's still had its right. ups and downs. Um, but we also, you know, we the, the way we produce journalism, the way we interact with people, we, we treat people as smart, curious human beings who know more than we do. And uh, we also realize that a lot of people don't see NPR as a consumption choice but as a lifestyle choice and that's one hell of a burden to live up to but you know we're we're always up for that challenge and uh uh just knowing that keeps us uh it keeps us pretty humble, and but also gives us the chance to share that sense of ownership with the public when when there are opportunities where they want to work out work with us. Wow. Well, this has been super awesome having you here, Andy Carvin, A-C-A-R-V-I-N at, on Twitter. If you want to, like everybody else who's smart, follow him. Uh, if you have ways to help him, please do send him you know information when he's covering something or start doing the same thing yourself. You can be a journalist. Maybe we'll, here in Tumble Vision, um, take a note from the NPR model. So let us know if you think we should have memberships or take donations. We're trying to figure that out as well. 
Um, we may have a mix of that and sponsorship. You can find us here at uh, online at T-U-M-M-E-L-V-I-S-I-O-N.tv. And next week uh, we'll be back with, I unfortunately I'm reaching for Mike. this one. Mike. Mike Krinsky. Mike Krinsky. We're going to talk about XPRIZE. The man behind the XPRIZE community. Yes. Which, which is, Deb, explain for one sec what it is so people know. XPRIZE is all about doing competitions to raise money and awareness about various things. Most notably, the first XPRIZE was about, wait, I want to make sure I get the first one right. Kev, what was the first one about? Um, I'm not sure what the first one was. The, the, the famous one was, was building an orbital, orbital vehicle, building a rocket right. that would go into orbit twice within a week. Right. So it's about, it's about crowdsourcing the community, understanding that the folks out there might know more than you do in here, and they get people, organizations to sponsor sort of challenges to get prizes that better mankind. How about that? Both science and other areas. And I hope we did you proud, Mike, in describing it. Right. Because I so, think people listening. So we want to thank, uh, you got Kevin Marks, your co-host at, on Twitter at? Um, at Kevin Marks, KS. Um, and track me down online by searching for Kevin Marks because that will find me. And, Sorry. and Deb on Twitter you and the web you are? Uh, I am at Debs or... Deb Schultz, Google me online, and uh, stay tuned for more tumbling from all of us. Schultz Those, with a C H. Thanks, S C H U L T Z, and I just wanted to thank so many new people showed up tonight. Thanks to Andy, and I just want to thank you all for coming. And you asked a lot of questions about what tumbling is, so check out the website. We put a little bit up there and ping us with questions if you want to know a little bit more. Thanks, Alex Tetro and Kalish TJ. Keep your anonymous location and in Finster and Patterson and Elizabeth, the citizen journalist, and everyone who's here. Come back. We'll be here next week. And uh, we want to thank, of course, our wonderful producer. Television is produced in Baltimore, Maryland by Andrew Hazlitt. Hazlitt. Shoot. God, I've been doing it wrong all forever. Andrew. Andrew Hayeslet of the new modern.net. I'm Heather Gold at heathergold.com and unpresenting.com. I teach this stuff in live and in person and perform all over. And this has been Tumble Vision 62. Rock on, and we'll see you here next week.